0: I'm Scott Radnitz, the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. And I'm pleased to welcome everybody to the fifth annual Herb Ellison Memorial Lecture. Professor Ellison taught at the Jackson School of International Studies for 34 years and was a keen observer of Soviet politics. He also worked throughout his career to build the infrastructure of funding and training so that students of Russia could later become experts and inform government policy. Recently, though, the case for public funding of world regions has been called into question, especially in times of austerity and possibly isolationism. Since the Cold War ended, Russia has sometimes been seen as remote and distant from the everyday concerns of Americans, and so it could be safely ignored. That argument started to falter after Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008, It looked even flimsier when Russia invaded Ukraine and took Crimea, but this stuff was still kind of far away and not relevant to us. And then came the 2016 election. Now people are paying attention. It's no longer a stretch to say that Russia matters. And what happens in Russia in the coming years will matter not just in the U.S., but probably globally as well. For the Ellison Lecture, we bring in someone from the world of policy journalism or think tanks who's closely connected to world events and can shed light on what's happening in the world. And that's why we're happy to have Maria Lippmann with us tonight. Ms. Lippmann is a longtime analyst and commentator on Russian politics. She's the editor of Counterpoint, an online journal at the George Washington University. She was with the Carnegie Moscow Center from 2003 to 2014. She has published widely on Russian politics and contributed commentary to outlets such as the Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, The New Yorker, Newsweek, and the New York Review of Books. This semester, she is teaching at Indiana University, so she was just across the country, easy to fly her out, so we took advantage of that. Uh, the title of our talk today is 2017, the year that should shed light on both Russia's past and future. So please join me in welcoming Maria Lipton.
1: Um, thank you very much, Professor Rudnitz, for this very generous introduction. Uh, it's a great pleasure and honor to be here and to talk to you tonight. I'm really glad that uh, Russia matters, even though um, I don't think uh, the reason why Russia matters makes people in this audience happy. Uh, so But I'm going to talk today about um, uh, uh, things that have to do with Russian's Russian ideology or nation-building. And uh, uh, what makes this subject relevant especially is that this year, uh, 2017, is the 100th anniversary of the great October socialist revolution. Uh, So uh, it was that event 100 years ago was a major world upheaval. uh, And John Reed memorably uh, wrote that those days in October 1917 shook the world russia was virtually turned upside down and in 1918 the 300 year old russian empire was nowhere to be found the new state exterminated the peasants the nobility the clergy abolished the national identity and uprooted tradition and faith a new nation and a new culture emerged in their place for seven decades This new nation, from preschoolers to a central committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, celebrated the revolution anniversary as the main national holiday, the birth of the Soviet statehood. Across the vast Soviet expanse, people glorified heroes of the revolution and its mastermind, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who is still found in the mausoleum in the Red Square in Moscow. Uh, In December last year, Putin was scheduled to give his State of the Nation address to the Parliament. And the expectations were that he would uh, (coughs) devote large part of um, um, uh, his speech to the 100th anniversary of the revolution. Yet he uh, limited himself with just a few short graphs. Um, So what he said was that we need history lessons primarily for reconciliation, and for strengthening the social, political, and civil concord that we have managed to achieve. It is unacceptable, he said, to drag the uh, grudges, anger, and bitterness of the past into our life today, and in pursuit of one's own political and other interests to speculate on tragedies. Concern about national reconciliation has been fairly high on Putin's list of priorities since very early in his presidency. In his programmatic Millennium uh, article that was published in 1999 when Putin was um, getting prepared to act as Russia's president, he wrote that fruitful creative work for the benefit of the fatherland is impossible in a society that finds itself in a condition of division and is internally separated. 17 years later, as I just quoted, Putin claims to have achieved this highly important goal. But this hardly made him any less concerned about threats to this unity. The bloody clashes between the monarchy and its opponents, or between reds and whites, are not an issue in today's Russia. The grudges, anger, and bitterness that Putin is warning against have everything to do with his nation-building effort that has gained new intensity in recent years. Putin is anxious to maintain and consolidate civic reconciliation after the collapse of the Soviet Union that he rightly sees as a national trauma. Back in the late 80s and through part of the 90s, it was common in Russia to trace the national trauma to the communist terror. The remedy back then was seen in the exposure of dark truths about the communist regime. Truth, however, failed to bring reconciliation. Now Putin is trying another approach, the remedy of obfuscation and oblivion, a reconciliation without truth. In the rest of my talk, I will dwell on how this strategy of unity and reconciliation has evolved, on its elements and actors, in the peculiarities of the current historical discourse. Putin's return to the Kremlin in 2012 uh, was accompanied by a radical shift of policies, foreign and domestic. One of the changes has been the Kremlin's shift toward ideology. Um, Ideology uh, in this case should be used in quotation marks. What I imply is the realm of the intangibles Elements of national identity, including historical myths, political rhetoric, values, symbols, ideas, norms, etc., that inform uh, public political perceptions. Those who operate in this realm range from poets to politicians, but I will mostly, those, though not exclusively, focus on the state actors and a range of the pro Kremlin actors. This is not to say that non state actors do not exist in Russia or have been radically silenced. And I'll be happy to talk about those actors in the uh, question and answer session. In this framework, Putin's ideology would imply the ideological work conducted by the state actors and loyalists in the realm of the intangibles. The Kremlin is not offering any doctrine. Rather, it draws on a system of ideological defenses against competition that might erode the national unity whether on the part of the West, or on the part of domestic um, agents. After the disintegration of the Soviet Union, Marxist ideology was easily discarded. This was really uh, easy to do, because by then, uh, it basically uh, had been uh, nothing but an empty shell. Gone was the existential battle of the two worlds, communism against capitalism, the Soviet against the Western. Ideology became a bad word. So bad indeed that the new Russian constitution adopted in 1993, among its basic provisions, had that no ideology may be instituted as a state-sponsored or mandatory ideology. The post-communist Russia uh, emulated Western models in many spheres of life. In a most unprecedented way in uh, Russian history, Russia opted for a Western-style political system. While uh, Western models uh, have been been repeatedly adopted in the past centuries, uh, this practice never applied to the political system. But in early 1990s, the framers of the new Russian constitution drew inspiration from the national charters of Western countries. Russia also began to build a Western-style market economy, and the designers of the new Russian media, television, and print carefully reproduced what they saw as the best formats the West had to offer. Besides, uh, since Gorbachev's Perestroika uh, and through part of the 90s, the country engaged in radical and passionate revision of its past and was soon inundated in disclosures and condemnations of the communist crimes in the Soviet experience in general. The hardship and turmoil of the early post-Soviet years soon led to a steady disappointment in westernizing reforms in deepening divisions between uh, the reform-minded minority and the disappointed conservative majority, between those who benefited from uh, uh, reforms and those who lost. Uh, The people of the new Russia barely wanted their communist creed back, but there was arguably a growing sense that there had been something about that system, something that conveyed a meaning to life. Public frustration was aggravated by a sense of national humiliation, of being taken for granted by the more powerful West, first and foremost, the United States. And politics of 1990s uh, was heavily confrontational. In comes Putin uh, with his proud stance that nobody has the right to teach us or preach to us. That was his response to frustration over Western models and self-righteous judgment by the West. Putin sought to benefit from lucrative cooperation with the West, but in a way habitual to Russian rulers, he was no Westernizer when it came to the political system uh, and to the system of government management. Um, he uh, believed in control, not in checks and balances. He memorably promised to protect his people by knocking out terrorists and outhouses, sending a signal that he assumed responsibility for his country's security. He put an end to political instability by establishing tight, tightly centralized control over politics. In early 2000s, in an interview with American journalist, Russia's leading pollster, Alexander Aslon said that Putin would let the river revert to its authoritarian course. Um, he, uh, you cannot go against the tide for too long, he added. Putin was not an ideological leader. But he saw the societal divisions and political competition as hurdles that had to be removed. He sought to calm down the passions unleashed by the political and ideological upheavals of the 1990s. Yet his reconciliation policy was not about offering a unifying idea. Instead, he marginalized the discussions of divisive and disquieting subjects, such as Stalin's crimes, revision of the Soviet policies in Europe before and after World War II, or excessive criticism of his own government's performance. The aim was not to generate a national consensus, but to muffle the existing differences. For Putin, an essential element of this strategy was not to bind himself with doctrines or dogmas. This way, he was able to keep flexibility and freedom of maneuver, And by sending different, sometimes contradictory signals, he managed not to alienate certain constituencies that were not ready to pledge allegiance to the Kremlin fully. Overall, the Kremlin's project of the 2000s can be referred to as nationwide demobilization. The people were discouraged from engaging in political debates and discussions of politically sensitive subjects. The steadily growing price of oil, Putin's immense stroke of luck, greatly facilitated his goal of taking politics under control and keeping people acquiescent. During this period, there was little emphasis on ideology or nation building. Putin only occasionally touched upon issues of history or national unity. National television, by then um, under control, offered ideological nation-building content, but that content was not obtrusive. Uh, What uh, we are talking about here is promoting the image of Putin uh, as that of a leader of no alternative. Also, the uh, status of the Russian Orthodox Church during those years was steadily raised. The official discourse and television coverage put a strong emphasis on World War II and the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany, which was, and remains, uh, the one uniquely undisputed event of the Russian history. Hence the (coughs) immense emphasis on the annual nationwide celebration of May 9, the victory uh, in uh, World War II that has gotten grander about a year. Most other crucial issues pertaining to history, ideology, and nation-building remain blurred. In sharp contrast with the Soviet times, there was no clarity on the origins of the new Russian statehood, the original myth. In order to strip the communists of the monopoly on the main state holiday, the day of the revolution, uh, November 7, it was renamed the day of reconciliation and accord. However, no publicly recognized narrative related to national reconciliation. And uh, a new holiday was introduced um, on November 4, again, in order to uh, strip communists of this monopoly. And that holiday was called the Day of National Unity. But again, no narrative was attached to it. And nobody in the Kremlin cared to explain why, after celebrating national unity on November 4, the Russian people should celebrate Accord and Reconciliation three days later. Uh, And because there was no narrative, Uh, about this newly introduced holiday. It was soon appropriated by uh, radical nationalists in Russia who (coughs) conducted on that day their annual, the so-called Russian March, under ugly xenophobic slogans. Uh, Likewise, there was no clarity on the nature of the new national identity. Was post-Soviet Russia an empire like the USSR or the uh, Russian Empire before that? Or a nation state? It had never been. Uh, what was Russia if it was no longer Soviet? There was no national pantheon. Old heroes were mostly unmentioned, new ones have not been introduced. And most importantly, uh, whatever ideological work was conducted on television or by Putin, it was, I want to emphasize, non-obtrusive. TV exercise in nation building was ignored or made fun of by the more educated urban Russians. Some ideological training was imposed on the members of the Kremlin party, United Russia, and more broadly on the political establishment. And, a range, uh, um, uh, and the Kremlin offered a range of reading that was assigned to government officials. Uh, those included books by Russian philosophers, such as Berdyaev, Solovyov, and Ilyin uh, And uh, government officials were instructed to read them and uh, uh, I guess to uh, uh, think about Russian statehood in these terms. Vladislav Sorkov, a senior Kremlin aide, disseminated among the lawmakers his concept of sovereign democracy. But all that ideological training was limited to the government officials. The Kremlin showed relative permissiveness with regard to those constituencies that would not support its policies as long as they were securely marginalized and could not stir unwanted emotions among the conservative majority. Demobilization was uh, the the, the right policy. For about two decades after the collapse of communism, um, the elite in general remained non-intrusive and uh, 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 practically did not interfere with ideational sphere, people's individual pursuits, and uh, private lives. Uh, which was the stark contrast to, of course, the long decades of uh, the Soviet times. In the 2000s, the oil, oil bonanza generated a level of prosperity unprecedented in the Russian history. Moscow turned into a bustling cosmo- cosmopolitan city. The government elites and their entrepreneurial class enjoyed broad opportunities of enrichment Businessmen and civil servants learned to take advantage of the many opportunities of the Western world from schools for their children to Western courts where they turned for business litigation. Young Russian urban dwellers uh, traveled to the West to gain new experience, professional and otherwise, and enjoyed opportunities of study abroad, internships, academic work, and cooperation with Western colleagues. The uninformed infatuation with the West, characteristic of the late Soviet period, gave way to a much better informed appraisal of the Western life among sizable minorities. And this contributed to a rather large scale modernization and westernization of part of the Russian society, mostly at the individual level uh, of lifestyle and consumption habits, but some elements of social modernization also emerged A new constituency of young, liberal-minded, and at least superficial Westernized Russians uh, who did not share the habitual paternalistic worldview was taking shape. They were a minority that wouldn't watch state TV promoting the grandeur of Russia at all times and Putin's mightiness. But as a minority, they did not feel the pressure of the much larger conservative majority, nor did they feel the pressure of the state in those years. There was a reason for virtually everyone at that time to be quiescent and reasonably content. The Kremlin remained non-ideological, non-intrusive, relatively permissive, and seemed undisturbed by the uncontrolled modernization. Putin's goal of national reconciliation was thus achieved, and he could pride himself on being the reconciler and uniter. Such was the the situation at the end of 2011 when Putin announced his comeback to the Kremlin. It was this constituency of modernized Europeanized Russians that was at the core of mass protests that erupted in Moscow in December 2011, following the announcement of uh, Putin's comeback to the Kremlin and the fraudulent parliamentary election in December 2011. the protesters themselves may not have been too many, a 100,000 at the maximum in Moscow, much fewer in other urban centers, but nationwide, according to public opinion surveys at the time, about one-third sympathized with the protest- protesters who chanted Russia without Putin. The general quiescence, Putin's major achievement, was eroded even though the government continued to deliver and offered opportunities of self-enrichment and self-fulfillment. The Kremlin responded with a change of course, with a shift to counter-modernization, anti-Western and anti-liberal policies with a strong ideological component. Three factors played a role here. The most immediate one was the need to quash the protests, neutralize the excessively modernized minority, Uh, Another was the economic slowdown. The economic resource began to shrink. The Kremlin could no longer rely on it as a source of legitimacy and had to look for an alternative. So the ideological resource was to make up for the shrinking economic one. A third factor was Libya. The Western operation in Libya was seen by Putin as an egregious abuse of Russia's cooperation, its vote of abstention in the UN Security Council. And according to various sources, it was after Libya that Putin had decided to shut down the liberal modernizing project. The Kremlin's first step was to consolidate the paternalistic patriotic majority by pitting it against the overly modernized unpatriotic minority. The tactics of the 2000s, that of uh, demobilization and blurring the differences, gave way to a policy of polarization, of discrediting and intimidating those who would not accept the paternalistic order. The Russians were divided into the loyal ones, the Putin majority, and the disloyal ones, the exponents of the new non-Soviet symbolic capital, mostly based on Western liberal values. Such a division, required greater ideological certainty, a formulation of the normative standards that would guide loyal Russians. Thus, Putin of the 2000s, Putin the mostly non-ideological uniter, became the increasingly ideological divider. The new ideology rested uh, mostly on three major pillars. The great power mentality and Putin as the leader who reinstated Russia's greatness, the anti Western, anti liberal, and anti modernization posture, and social conservatism, um, understood as adherence to uh, traditional values. In Putin's earlier statements, the West had been not infrequently referred to as an unfriendly competitor, and in some cases, as a hostile force bent on inflicting harm on Russia. Now a new motive emerged. The West was depicted as a source of alien and unacceptable values and a hotbed of immorality. In 2013, Putin explicitly accused the West of immorality and deviation from Christian morals. He condemned Western policy of tolerance as neutered and barren. The issues of social conservatism and traditional values have become inextricably linked to the threat that the West poses to Russian values, its culture, and its very soul. The trick was to fuse uh, a disparate collection of groups and individuals into one indivisible evil. The West Westernizers, liberals, recipients of foreign grants, gays, contemporary artists, and their fans, those refusing to accord absolute deference to the Russian Orthodox Church, or to regard the Russian historical record as anything but unblemished. Instead of the state that does not intrude, there emerged a state that, for the first time in a quarter of a century, interfered in the private and public sphere, the issues of family values, sexual preferences, faith, education, and culture. In 2012, the trial and conviction of the Pussy Riot Punk Band substantially strengthened social conservatism and the position of the Russian Orthodox Church. The unified concept of teaching history that for years had been talked about but not implemented was ordered, developed at a lightning speed, and approved under Putin's watch. During this period, Putin repeatedly expounded his own personal views on various historical events. Addressing young historians in late 2014, he spoke at great length, sharing his very detailed vision of historical events ranging from the 9th to the 20th century and emphasizing the need to persuade the broad public of our righteousness. Interpretations of history as well as um, ideological issues became a matter of new legal norms. Among them, a series of legal bans on profanity in the media, gay propaganda among minors, uh, a ban on offending the sensitivities of religious believers, a de facto ban on critical assessment of the policies and acts of the Soviet Union during World War II, a ban on desecration of symbols of military glory, and the list is far from full. Uh, The crisis in Ukraine uh, gave a new powerful push uh, to the Kremlin ideological work. In a creative and highly effective trick, the civic crisis in, in Kiev was framed as a replay, as it were, of the Great Patriotic War, the way uh, Russia, uh, World War II is referred to in Russia. Uh, it was framed as an offensive of fascists, Banderites, and neo-Nazi against ours. The annexation of Crimea was thus mapped as an echo of that great victory in World War II. This new, today's victory was almost universally cheered as evidence of Russia's regained greatness and righteousness and a rejection of Western judgment. It should be emphasized that this victory and this new greatness was not, and was not framed as people's achievement. It was granted to them as a gift of their leader. Putin once again reemerged as a uniter um, while only a couple of years earlier, at the time of mass rallies, about one-third supported the anti-Putin pr- protesters, in 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, his approval rating showed up to over 80% instantly and has remained at that level ever since. This time around, however, it was not about demobilizing the Russian people or lulling them into acquiescence. But uh, it was about agitating them with emotionally charged and vitriolic, anti-American, and anti-Ukrainian rhetoric. The Kremlin forcefully inculcated the besieged fortress mentality, the us against them. Railing around the leader was not just a matter of loyalty now, it was a matter of national security and even national identity. To be a true Russian, was to support Putin and celebrate the annexation of Crimea. To feel otherwise was to be un Russian, unpatriotic, maybe even a traitor. The mobilization rhetoric inspired not a negligible number of Russian men to join ours in Donbas, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and some of them were soon gaining renown in Russia and came to be seen as present day heroes. This was beginning to look like a threat to Putin's strategy of paternalistic reconciliation. The nation he had in mind had to be acquiescent, not driven. Autonomous initiative interfered with his strategy of building the nation around himself, an uncontested and unchallenged leader. In his vision, there was no place for popular heroes emerging from below. By early to mid uh, 2015, the hysterical agitation subsided and Putin mostly abandoned the role of the chief ideologist. Either because he got too preoccupied with economic and foreign policy, uh, or whether he probably was bored, or maybe because he felt that the nation was unduly mobilized. His withdrawal left a void that could not be filled by any one person or institution In Putin's personalistic regime, there can be no outsourcing of authority. So the void was filled by a broad range of actors, from Soviet-style imperialists to Christian orthodox fundamentalists, Stalinists, and aggressive obscurantists. None of them had a sizable following, but there was a sense that as long as they were in line with the government's uh, ideological priorities, that is, they adhered to the anti-modern, anti-Western, and anti-liberal agenda, they could count on the government's acceptance, if not approval. Meanwhile, liberal and Westernizers were condemned as the fifth column or even national traitors. The anti-liberals got away with the verbal and sometimes even physical aggression, including acts of vandalism and physical attacks at those individuals who looked too radical morally or politically incorrect or disrespectful of the russian orthodox church this anti-mortem frenzy is not limited to crackpots claiming that god our lord sponsors their vigilante attacks hordes of officials including the minister of culture and his associates and members of the duma trying to outdo one another have constantly proposed new anti-Western, anti-liberal, anti-modern restrictions in the moral, cultural, and political spheres. Most recently, Putin addressed the, issues of, the issue of, of vandalism by saying that violence is unacceptable. But at the same time, he warned artists against being too provocative. Both provocative contemporary artists and their attackers interfere with the reconciliation, which implies that stirring any kind of public passion is unwelcome. And the Kremlin has demonstrated that even when unwelcome energies are unleashed, it is capable to temper them. It is noteworthy that the government makes sure that unwanted activism be nipped in the bud. In the in the bud, but uh, acts it acts more carefully in those cases when uh, discontent is of larger scale. An unexpectedly large scale protest that took place earlier this month in St. Petersburg is a good example. A few thousand people joined a rally to protest against the transfer of control over St. Isaac Cathedral, currently a museum, to the Russian Orthodox Church. A public opinion survey revealed that the transfer was generally unpopular among St. Petersburg residents the Kremlin promptly suggested a consul- conciliatory decision that St. Ba- Isaac should be uh, controlled jointly by the city and the Russian Orthodox Church. The viability of such a joint venture is highly questionable, though. Um, even in the uh, um, pre-revolutionary past, uh, St. Isaac uh, was not controlled by the church. It was controlled by one of the uh, Tsar's cabinet ministers. Uh, But the very claim of the Russian Orthodox Church to take over St. Petersburg major architectural masterpiece is an indication that the status of the Russian Orthodox Church has become even higher. In today's Russia, the Church is seen as a pillar of the Russian statehood, a powerful political actor, and a reliable partner of the Kremlin. The patriarch of uh, the Russian Orthodox Church speaks about a global heresy of the worship of men, a new idolatry that wrests God from human life. The Church, he says, must commit the power of its defense, its word, its thought, toward overcoming this heresy of modernity, which may lead to apocalyptic developments. The growing itself wouldn't sound so glaringly obscurantist, but it certainly benefits by having by its side an authority such as Russian Orthodox Church, always eager to support state powers against the West and the excessively modernized Russians. But the church is also entrusted with the task of commemorating Stalin's victims. Unlike um, uh, uh, non-government agents such as the Memorial Society, the church can be relied on to reduce the commemoration uh, um, to just mourning and not raise the issue of perpetrators. And this is how the church is entrusted with commemoration uh, uh, and increasingly so while the memorial society is under pressure. Um, The church can be relied on because it would not uh, compromise the Soviet secret police and this is unacceptable in today's Russia where state security is a major political actor and a proud successor of the KGB and its early incarnations. For the first time in the post-communist years, not to mention of course the 70 years of the communist rule, the Russian Orthodox Church has a large presence in the new school books. Um, New school books based on the single concept of history teaching um, that was uh, um, overseen by Putin himself have just been published uh, for this academic year. The general discourse of the books is about wise leadership taking care of the people. The leadership is concerned about people's well-being and is always on the alert to prevent divisions and upheaval and punish troublemakers. Uh, It would be wrong to say that school history is fully silent on the dark pages of the Russian history. It is critical of Stalin and Lenin. Uh, It mentions deportations uh, and repressions. And uh, it makes sure not to raise doubts about the wisdom of the leaders. Repressions may not be justified. They may even be condemned. Yet so that it would not undermine the government's legitimacy. Because undermining the legitimacy of supreme government authority is a way to revolution, blood, tragedy, and national disaster. This uh, anti-revolutionary message is central to the school history discourse that uh, was introduced this year. Um, the, uh, if reforms are needed, uh, uh, school books teach, uh, the government should make necessary improvements. But if people themselves undertake the reform uh, by opposing the government, this will inevitably lead to national disaster. Reconciliation, Putin style, implies, or rather mandates, unquestioning loyalty of citizens to their leader. Um, this quote from Putin: Too often in the national history, instead of in opposition to the government, um, we face opposition to Russia itself, and as we know, and we know how it ends with the destruction of the state itself. Um, now, um, this quote um, is part uh, is an element of a permanent exhibition. Uh, called Russia my history that opened in Moscow a couple of years ago an exhibition uh, that uh, can be also described as a history park. So here is uh, the facade of the exhibition which yeah I think you can see it has um, the quote from Alexander the Great about uh, Russia having just two um, allies its army and navy and uh, 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 this is uh, um, uh, this adorns the entrance to the exhibition, um, where the infallibility of the ruler is the central message. Uh, Pre revolutionary Russian history at this exhibition is presented as unabashed eulogy of all Russian czars and princes, with uh, precious little mention of the Russian people. Um, the, uh, at the same time, uh, the message of the exhibition contains unequivocal denunciation of anybody who ever rose against the rulers. From Emilian Pugachev, the leader of Peasants' Rebellion of uh, the 18th century to the Decembrists in the early 19th century in stark contrast to the Soviet narrative, which portrayed the Decembrists as romantic idealists who sacrificed their lives for the sake of freedom, in the exhibition, they are condemned and portrayed as agents of the West determined to destroy their country. And of course, later revolutionaries um, of the 19th century are also denounced. Putin's lines about the anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution uh, that I cited in the beginning of my talk, the one about, uh, in which he warns about grudges, um, anger, and bitterness, Uh, is another manifestation of this nation-building strategy, one that mandates that divisions are unacceptable and difficult historical issues should better be subdued. And this is how in time for the 100th anniversary of the revolution, the official discourse on the meaning or the actors of the revolution is avoided. Because the meeting was exactly about a clash of two antagonistic visions uh, for the Russian path, which ended in a historical rupture. So instead of looking into the implications of that clash, Putin chose to reduce the commemoration uh, of the revolution to calls for unity and condemnation of any revolutionary movement. And by extension of political opposition, in a strife, ideological differences, or civic autonomy, and thus he set the tone uh, for the political establishment and a broader range of loyalists of how the anniversary of the revolution should be referred to today the communist party of the russian federation is a successor to the communist party of the soviet union the uncontested ruling force of the USSR. so it would be natural to expect that today's communists would glorify the revolution and its victory over the old regime. Um, but uh, um, the leader of communists, Gennady Zuganev, who you see um, on this picture, um, uh, indeed announced that festive demonstrations and rallies uh, will be held all over Russia. Um, He referred to the Bolshevik Revolution as the Great October, as it was referred to in the Soviet Union, yet he evasively said that we should take all the best things from our history and confidently move forward. He wouldn't specify just what all the best stands for and where the line runs that separates the best from the not-so-good, for instance, whether the execution of the tsar and his family, the extermination of the nobility, peasants, and clergy, and the destruction of churches belong to the best or uh, what movement qualifies as forward in today's Russia. Today's Russian communists eagerly embrace the Russian Orthodox Church um, and Zuganov and the Patriot cordially greet greet each other uh, and award each other with uh, prizes Both are fully loyal to Putin and thus both (coughs) contribute to the unity and reconciliation and easily dismiss their past differences. So here is the leader, also uh, pledging allegiance to the church, as it were. For its part, the Russian Orthodox Church, which has increasingly sought to assert itself as the government's ideological arm, devoted its annual uh, public conference to 1917 Uh, 2017 Lessons of the Century. The conference resolution opens with a somewhat obscure and convoluted pronouncement which says, despite the widespread apostasy, the loss of spiritual foundation, and Christian moral guidelines, and the deliberate persecution of the Orthodox Church in all countries under the jurisdiction of the Moscow Patriarchate, in the period after 1917, the Lord, in his wisdom, saw to it that the turn of the 21st century became a time of um, turning back to Christ, a time of spiritual rebirth and transformation of our people Apparently, uh, as it follows from this statement, if something follows from it, um, something disastrous transpired in 1917, but in the reconciliation vein, the focus is not on what actually happened, but on the providential forces that enabled the nation to get over those unnamed misfortunes, come together and resurrect. Uh, The Church's document then talks not concretely about the deleterious effects of revolutions, in the Civil War and about the new martyrs without as much as a mention of the perpetrators, whose evil doings prompted resistance that was rewarded by canonization of those martyrs. Minister of Culture Vladimir Mitsinsky, also keen on producing ideological meaning appropriate for today's Russia, announced that the revolution would be commemorated with a new monument to be erected in Crimea, where else? Uh, The monument, Mitinsky said, symbolizing the unity, integrity of our history, the continuity of both uh, the uh, the pre- and post-revolutionary Russia. There's barely anything unusual about using interpretations of the past for nation building. And national reconciliation is, of course, a worthy goal. What is peculiar to Putin's attempt at reinterpretation of the Russian history is the essential rejection of a starting point of the Russian statehood. Russia, he says, did not begin either in 1917 or in 1991. We have a single uninterrupted history spanning over 1,000 years. This vision draws on avoiding facts and names and prefers obfuscation to interpretation. It ignores two major ruptures of the Russian statehood that took place in the 20th century, and reduces the role of of the people to either unquestioning supporters or dangerous troublemakers. Most importantly, it conveys the sense that any attempt to oppose the government, any government, is evil. But while it may be easy uh, to uh, 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 glorify almost any period of the Russian history and denounce irreverent critics and opponents, Merging those periods in a single narrative is a huge challenge, especially when it comes to the point of rupture, such as 1917 when the ancien regime was destroyed. Beneath obfuscation and evasions uh, lie irresolvable contradictions and divisions that come to light, uh, to light elicited by political strife, um, conflict of material interests, and such like. Let me mention just a few. Minister of Culture Medinsky says Soviet heroes should be worshipped as saints. He promises uh, to the uh, communist leader, Gennady Zyuganov, to make sure not a single Lenin statue is torn down. Meanwhile, Putin has repeatedly spoken rather critically of Bolsheviks and even Lenin, whom he criticized for his role in building the Soviet state for making Novorossiya part of Ukraine, not Russia, and for making Brest peace treaty in 1918. While Medinsky wants to worship Soviet heroes, the Russian Orthodox Church worships the slain tsar's family as saints and repeatedly called for re- renaming streets, squares, etc., named after revolutionary heroes. For instance, a metro station in Moscow is still named after Voykov, who sanctioned the execution of the Tsar's family in 1918. Zuganov and the Patriarch may award each other with prizes and heap praise on each other, but it's much harder to embrace both the royal victims as saints and their executioners as heroes. In a very recent public opinion poll, uh, Stalin uh, uh, was admired, respected, and liked by almost half of Russians. Uh, And yet Stalin remains an invisible hero. There are uh, no Stalin statues, no streets or squares named after him. Stalin statues have begun to emerge in very recent years in various localities But memorials to victims uh, erected in uh, the early post-communist period are are much more numerous. And uh, um, not a long time ago, Putin ordered a memorial to victims uh, of Stalin's repressions to be built in Moscow in Sakharov Street. Uh, So this is not a real uh, memorial. It has not been built yet, but it certainly will be built because it was Putin's order. So this is a model. Um, Lenin is still in the mausoleum Russia has lots of streets and squares named after him and Lenin statues are found in every Russian city and town but as I mentioned Putin have spoken critically of Lenin and the Russian officials rarely mention his name the issue of heroes is indeed a highly tricky one and not just present-day heroes who are obviously seen as an unwelcome political challenge Peter the Great, commemorated by a pretty ugly post-Soviet statue erected in Moscow, is inappropriate because he is too much of a westernizer. Uh, Ivan the Terrible, the 16th century Tsar, suddenly became the subject of heated public debate late late last year when the governor of Ariol region had a monument erected to him in the city of Ariol. The Kremlin did not endorse the glorification of the proverbially brutal Tsar, but the statue is in place uh, but And the governor of Oryol is likely to be replaced. Such are the political rumors in Moscow, whether or not it has to do with uh, the statue uh, to um, Ivan the Terrible. Uh, but the Kremlin does not like officials to cause um, public discourse. Um, at, uh, in the above-cited historical park, or this exhibition of um, called Russia, My History, um, It is explained that uh, Ivan the Terrible uh, protected, uh, um, should be protected against unwelcome uh, Western interpretations. So as you see, it says that Russians gave uh, a quite different, deeply wise appraisal uh, of the personality of um, um, Ivan the IV, Fourth, um, Ivan the Terrible, expressed in the nickname Grozny. In foreign historical literature, the meaning of this characteristic has been entirely distorted by the translations. Ivan der Schreckliche, Jean le Terrible, means frightening, horrible, which emphasizes the accusation of Ivan the IV Fourth of cruelty. And then the exhibition proceeds to say that compared to his contemporaries in other countries in Western Europe, he was a soft czar, not a cruel one. <laughs> um, so um, a more recent hero uh, is uh, um, uh, Pyotr Stolypin, uh, Russian pr- Prime Minister in uh, uh, 1910s whom uh, Putin seems to admire and had uh, inaugurated a Stolypin statue a few years ago in late uh, 2012 but no narrative has been attached to it and Stolypin remains I think generally unknown to the Russian public a most recent hero is St. Vladimir, whom um, ancient sources mention as the prince who uh, christened Ancient Rus. Last year, a monument to him was erected in Moscow, as you see right downtown Moscow, right next to the Kremlin. Um, uh, uh, St. Vladimir had never visited Moscow, had never been there. Uh, And uh, um, uh, the uh, um, ancient uh, ancient chronicle, um, uh, uh, claims that he christened uh, Rus in Kiev. However, given today's confrontations between Russia and Ukraine, Kiev is obviously an inappropriate cradle for the Russian Christianity. So Putin moved the Christianization to the Crimean Khersons, where, according to the same ancient chronicle, Vladimir himself was christened. Putin thereby killed two birds with one stone. He secured Russia's rights to Crimea and relocated Christianization to the reclaimed territory of the Crimean Peninsula. Anyhow, Prince Vladimir, a, fi- a figure of 1,000 years ago, has little bearing on the new post-communist Russian history. Um, some Russian observers, however, pointed to a fortunate coincidence of names. Uh, Vladimir Putin can be seen as symbolic reincarnation of Saint Vladimir, who brought Christianity to Rus, not just a ruler, but also a saint. As it applies to Russian national identity, concepts circulating in public discourse today include. And I, will, I would like to emphasize that all of this comes from people uh, um, or institutions totally, completely loyal to Putin. Russia is European. Uh, Putin himself said it in 2014. He had said it earlier, but he reiterated it even at the height of confrontation with the West. Russia, he said, is part of Europe, if a special one. Russia's Eurasian is another concept, also reasonably popular. Russia is a cultural and spiritual era of Byzantium, and therefore a purer, more genuine Europe than the actual Europe of today, which has abandoned its core Christian values and become immoral and decadent. Russia is not Europe. This is something that uh, the Minister of Culture said at some point, and even included it in one of the documents of the Ministry of Culture, which later uh, was erased from the document, however. Russia is not even a nation, but a unique civilization. In 2014, uh, the collection of national identity constructs was enriched by one more, Russia, uh, Russians uh, as a divided nation. Uh, Putin articulated this concept in his Crimean speech but he never repeated this formula and promptly returned to the more traditional Soviet rhetoric of Russia as a multi-ethnic nation of friendly peoples. The Russian realm, uh, that loomed very large at the time of Crimean annexation has occurred less frequently in the official discourse in the past couple of years. To return briefly to the anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution, the Russian Orthodox Church announced its plan to carry around Russia a reliquary with the relics of the new martyrs as a way of commemorating the victims of the revolution. Meanwhile, a Communist Party, not the main one, but a party that calls itself Communists of Russia as opposed to the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, came up with a legislative initiative to punish those who distort the account of the events related to the revolution. Putin's reconciliation without truth may be a success, at least for now. His power is uncontested and unchallenged. He's got 80 plus percent approval rating. He's a recognized father of the nation, above and beyond all other figures and institutions. Critics are few and weak and have little, if any, authority. The nationalist ideology of national greatness, heroic past, and resentment of the West, social conservatism, respect for the Russian Orthodox Church are readily accepted, although only a minority in Russia is truly conservative and very few go to church. There is no doubt that Putin will run again next year and stay on for another six years. But except for the generally shared pride in the victory in World War II, there is still no consensual historical narrative or nationally recognized heroes. The only present day hero is Putin himself. If there is no Putin, there is no Russia, is uh, a senior Kremlin official uh, said in 2014, which is tantamount to admitting that Russia's post-communist identity and its future remain blurred, thank you. So I'll be happy to take your questions, if any.
2: Carol uh, Williams. How significant do you think the expansion of NATO into former Soviet territory, the Warsaw Pact has been in empowering Putin to have the current state of Russia as under attack
1: by the West and you know, vulnerable Russian aggression? Has this been a major factor in his um, unification of the country? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I think it's been very significant. Uh, It should be remembered that uh, when Putin became president, he saw uh, Russia of the 90s as uh, the country that was humiliated, as the country which was taken for granted, as the country uh, whose protests against Western policies, whether um, the bombing of Yugoslavia, for instance, or uh, indeed the expansion of NATO. Were dismissed whenever Russia said uh, it is not admissible. It is not acceptable. It was dismissed, um, and uh, uh, he saw the uh, uh, expansion of NATO as uh, a uh, um, as an exploitation of the West, of the fact that the West, of course, won the Cold War. Um, I would say that um, if we look at it, uh, the expansion of NATO was uh, in large part a response to uh, Eastern European countries up until recently occupied by the Soviet Union for many decades. Uh, It was their desire, their um, uh, appeal to the West to protect them. They uh, had, and I think fairly justified, given the past, irrational fear, irrational because Russia was very weak at the time um that uh, russia would research and uh uh, uh uh it was uh, a big danger to them russia for its part also had an irrational fear of nato because uh the west was strong and uh triumphant and russia was weak and defeated uh, and uh, whereas russia's uh, uh, military alliance fell apart the warsaw pact nato was in full force and expanded. So given the two irrational fears, the West obviously opted for the fears of, uh, of uh, um, uh, uh, the Eastern European countries. Uh, it was a decision made. It, was, uh, uh, it is justified, by the way, in this week's article in The New Yorker by Strobe Talbot, who was uh, President Clinton's advisor on, uh, on Russia. Uh, so he stands firm. He said, I could not allow the same thing to happen to Eastern European countries again uh it is understandable but it was a choice that was made to putin it was a choice that meant that uh russia was treated as a threat even russia that was no longer communist so it was not about uh the fear of communism it was a fear of russia it was seeing russia as a threat which was i think uh an indication of um ambiguity at the same time russia was uh embraced as a fledgling democracy, as a, uh, a country that was on the right path and as a threat at the same time. This ambiguity uh, indicates, I think, to the complexity uh, of the situation right after the, uh, co- uh, the uh, end of the Cold War uh, and that complexity was uh, underestimated. Putin, of course, would look at it differently. Not as a complexity that was underestimated, but as a desire to uh, take advantage of Russia's weakness. And that in large part shaped his policies vis-a-vis the West since I think day one of his time in office as Russian president.
2: i um, Russia, it's Jill Doherty. Thank you very much. It was really a fascinating talk. And I have a question about um, how you would explain how President Putin moves seamlessly back and forth from uniter to divider, back again to uniter,
1: and how he can convince the people um, to support him when you have some of these kind of rational um, you know, cognitive dissonances, as I we always saying. But it really is a little bit hard to understand how people can accept him as he morphs back and forth. How do, how do you explain that? Um. I think it's got to do with that, uh, uh, with Putin reinstating traditional Russian pattern um, of omnipotent um, government, omnipotent state, and uh, powerless people. Um, what uh, liberals, including myself, uh, regard as uh, a crackdown on freedoms associated with uh, uh, um, the beginning of Putin's tenure, um, the uh, central centralized re, reinstated of centralized control um, over politics and the gradually increasing control over the society, I think uh, was seen by many, was perceived by many in Russia with a sense of relief. After the instability, after the uh, collapse of the habitual safety net of the 90s, he was the leader who was ready to assume responsibility. And that was the uh, sense that Putin projected. Uh, and it was indeed with a sigh of relief that Putin, uh, that people in Russia accepted this leader instead of uh, President Yeltsin, who whose popularity by the end of uh, 1990s uh, was in single uh, um, digits, was actually, there barely was any popularity. So he was the leader, and that was the beginning, who was strong, assumed the responsibility, and projected a sense that uh, uh, you uh, don't have to engage in politics I will, uh, uh, I will be the ruler. Uh, then there was a very long period, uh, very long period by the standards of the post-communist development when uh, he uh, Putin delivered not just uh, stability but also prosperity. And I think in any country, uh, the number of people be, be below the poverty level uh, was reduced about three times thanks to the high and growing price of oil, but who cares? It was associated with Putin, stability and prosperity. It was a long time when uh, uh, people realized that now we have the right kind of leader. Uh, And once he has created this sense, uh, and for, uh, as I said, by the end of the uh, uh, 2000s, he was seen as a uniter. Control over politics was very tight. Political opposition did not exist. Political competition was eradicated. Checks and balances did not exist. Uh, All television, uh, national television, was under tight control. Uh, At that point, there was already a sense that uh, any change is likely to make things worse, not better. Putin may not be ideal. Uh, and it is not, uh, uh, one shouldn't think that uh, people in Russia uh, looking at the political establishment think of them as uh, people who work for uh, the public good. This is not true. People see, of course, people are not blind or stupid. They see the problems, they feel the problems, the, uh, uh, especially these days when the economic situation is uh, uh, um, really um, grim, and this is how people see it. Uh, But there is a sense that if Putin cannot manage, nobody else can. Troublemakers who criticize are bound to make things worse, not better. It's better to cling to the uh, status quo. It's better to adjust. And uh, 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 with the annexation of Crimea, uh, Putin created this sense of nationalism, of resurgence. We're great again. We should be great. Russia is uh, there to be great. It's a great country. Uh, so the combination of all these, I think, uh, make it much easier for, for people to put up uh, with uh, uh, the, the uh, um, economic decline, uh, with corruption of the officials, with uh, any other problems they, they see in their lives. Here's the leader who is in place. He has been in power for 16 years. It's 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 amazing, come to think of it. It's uh, uh you know. Um, um, lions part of the, com- uh, of the um, uh, post-communist development. Um, and uh, uh, this is seen as a better option, that's for sure. So the, the uh, rallying around the leader effect that he created uh, is subsiding a little bit. The effect of Crimea... Uh, the, the annexation itself is still approved by the same 80 plus percent of the Russian people. The effect of inebriation of euphoria is fading away, uh, but the sense of greatness is there. And this is, of course, very, also very important and, and helps Putin uh, uh, maintain this amazing, amazing approval rating.
0: Hi, um, in the 90s, under Yeltsin, the oligarchs pretty, gained a tremendous cloud. In uh, the 2000s, under Putin, that changed. And I'm interested in how you think that changed. And then how are the oligarchs uh, operating in the current sanctions?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, oligarchs of the 90s uh, were more powerful than the state. That was when this word emerged. That was when uh, a very good book was written about uh, the state of the Russian economy and the balance of forces. The book was called "The Oligarchs" by David Hoffman, uh, which uh, described the rise of those oligarchs from uh, um, petty profiteers. Some of them some of them had different histories. What was most important, they were more powerful. The 1990s were a very rare period in the Russian history. Another, of course, was uh, um, after 1917, after the revolution, or around that time, when the state was weak. The perennial Russian pattern of uh, omnipotent state, powerless people, was broken. And uh, uh, the uh, 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 people with entrepreneurial spirit, people uh, uh, who enriched themselves fast, uh, became more important than the state itself. That was when the term emerged. Today uh, we have very rich people in Russia, uh, but uh, I would say it's wrong to call them the oligarchs because they do not rule. They do not have the power. They are as any anybody else in Russia at the Kremlin's discretion, at Putin's discretion. Um, The old, the so-called old oligarchs, some of them are not in Russia anymore. Two most powerful ones were evicted from Russia very early in Putin's power. Uh, They had two different stories, but two most powerful men were not in Russia. Um, Some of the uh, early batch of the early generation of oligarchs are still quite wealthy and uh, own uh, big businesses in Russia. But uh, they are totally, completely controlled by the Kremlin. Uh, there is a new generation of oligarchs. I'm talking about the most powerful, the mo- the, the wealthiest people. In uh, these rows, uh, thanks to their ties uh, with Putin, their good connection, their friendship, etc. Uh, of course, these two owe their wealth to Putin and are dependent on him. Um, but uh, the uh, um, Um, no matter how large the uh, wealth may be, uh, the uh, property, uh, big business property in Russia, is uh, owned by uh, rich people, but uh, even though they can draw huge profits, uh, the Kremlin at any time can say, you merge, you sell, you buy this should not belong to you, and uh, the response will be yes, sir. So the discretion is uh, in the uh, is the Kremlin's, and this is the rules of the game that uh, everybody understands. So this is a major difference between the 90s and, and today. Uh, these are people with clout in that uh, they can deal with rivals, they can probably uh, expand their wealth, but at the end of the day, they are at the Kremlin's discretion.
2: Hi, i to Julia your really Lecturer. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that uh, people view the annexation of Crimea as a gift from Putin to the Russian people. So, in that sense, uh, what is Putin hoping to gain from propping up Assad's regime and then kind of flexing muscles militarily with the West? Was he hoping to gain in terms of perception with
1: the Russian people, or is it not that central issue to them? Like, what was he hoping to gain there? Uh, I'm sorry, After so, to, so the annexation, yes, was a gift of the people. I'm not sure I understood the second like, part. Like Syria. Like Syria, Austria, oh, Austria, okay, Austria, okay, okay. gotcha, yeah, Austria. okay. Uh, the When I said the annexation is a gift, what, I'm, uh, what I mean is it was done instantly. It didn't cost anything to the Russian people at early stages. I'm not talking about the war in Donbass. Uh, so it, it didn't cost any human lives. It didn't, uh, people did not have to pay for it. It was bloodless, it was swift, and it was uh, this instant triumph. Uh, and this is uh, uh, why, um, this is why it looks to me to be a gift from the leader to the people. Uh, Syria is a different issue. I don't think there is much interest in Syria, in the details of it, it should be remembered that Crimea is a very, very special story. It is true that people in Russia thought of Crimea as Russian, and whenever the question was asked in public opinion polls throughout the post-communist period, uh, a very large percentage of the Russian people saw Crimea as uh, inherently Russian saw the, uh, 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 that Crimea ended up in Ukraine as a misunderstanding, as some, something uh, that, uh, that should be rectified. Of course, people were not ready to act for that. But uh, that was their opinion. This is why there was such strife. Syria, uh, I think there is a general sense that we can now do what the Americans used to do, project military force outside of its borders. But there is uh, no immediate, uh, uh, emotionally charged sense about Syria. Uh, Syria is part of this we are great again, something that the president of this country promises, and Putin seems to have delivered already. This is how Syria is seen. Um, Some, well, you know, uh, the the beginning of the war in Syria was uh, televised pretty much like uh, distant wars um, have been covered in this country. There's something highly technological. You don't even know what it is. This is a war without casualties, without blood, without prisoners of war. It's just something that happens there. You see this explosion and then somebody, a voiceover tells you that an important target was hit. So our military is strong. We are confident that uh, the military can protect us. This is, by the way, uh, uh, reflected uh, very well in public opinion polls. People say today that they are confident that the armed forces of Russia um, are today able to protect the country. Uh, There is uh, uh, a grown pride in uh, historical past in the the military might. Syria, as Syria per se, I don't think attracts much interest uh, um, among the Russian audience.
0: How accurate is it to say that Mr. Putin is now
1: the world's richest man with as much as $80 Oof. billion? Dollars? I'm afraid well. I can't answer this one. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there have been allegations for years that he is uh, uh, you know, one of the richest men in the world, but uh, nobody has been able to provide evidence for that so far um allegations have been made beginning i would say easily 10 years ago but what do we know
2: unfortunately um, is considered to be a hero not just in russia but in moldova, uh. moldova and mm-hmm. uh, it is considered uh, idol for significant part of population and uh, for our newly elected president uh, and uh, I want to ask
1: you, in terms of ideology, how the presence of Russian military forces in Transnistria can be legitimated? <sighs> <Shh. laughs> uh, I'm afraid this is a question to ask of a policymaker. Um, uh, I'm not sure. It, it, it is certainly true. I, I know what you're saying about your country. Uh, and this is a change, of course. Your country went through uh, a long period when it was uh, much less pro-Russian. There was an episode, if I remember correctly, when uh, uh, Russia expected to uh, have an agreement with Moldova and uh, 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 overnight Moldova changed its mind under a communist President Voronin, if I remember uh, uh, correctly. And this to Putin was yet another signal That the West is there to weaken Russia. The minute when Russia is expanding its influence to what Putin saw as a natural sphere of influence, the West interferes and uh, 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 takes advantage of Moldova's dependence on Europe, um, uh, forces the Moldovan president to change his decision. Uh, But, you know, after a long period of time, um, by whatever ways, but not by use of force. Uh, um today the situation has changed and uh, 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 in, uh, your president Putin has an ally. Uh, just how the situation in Transnistria will be resolved, I'm not sure, but in itself, I think this is quite an achievement for Putin because it, it, it this is not Ukraine. It didn't take uh, you know measures that would outrage the international community. Uh, He didn't break any rules or norms of um, um, the relations between the countries. And yet, Moldova is today an ally. Frankly, I I, I don't think that the frozen conflict such as Transnistria, which has existed in this uh, capacity for 25 years, right? 25 years. I cannot see why this is a problem. Frozen conflicts may actually uh, last even longer. And uh, uh, I, I can't see why there is such an urgency in resolving it.
2: Thank you. Um, I know this is mostly a talk about uh, Russia's past and reflections on the past. But looking down the road, if um, oil prices stay low, and uh, problems develop, uh, and uh, the 80% support is highly conditioned on some kind of basic level of uh, not prosperity, at least uh, not disaster. But as things continue to deteriorate, and in 16 years, if uh, Putin has not been successful building any other economy um, of any strength, um, could you make the argument? What would, what would be the argument that things could go the other direction and um, things could get worse? Particularly in the outlying areas uh, like the Russian far east that are um, maybe particularly prone to poverty and uh, I, I guess payment arrears at this point. Uh, more problems with that. Some signs of demonstrations. Is that a scenario that uh, or what would be the scenario
1: there? Uh. Again, this is a question that I find very difficult to answer, uh, and this is um, how I try to uh, end my talk. Uh, we don't have a vision for the future if uh, you know uh, there is no Russia without Putin, Putin, after all, is immortal, right? So uh, there is, and uh, uh, there will be a Russia without Putin. but uh, what kind of Russia this is going to be is very hard to tell this point. Um, we always think about change. Uh, if we are unhappy with today's development, we always tend to think what uh, uh, a uh, different situation may be. But what if there is uh, muddling through that lies ahead? Uh, it, uh, uh, it is not a given that the situation may radically change um there are countries uh with uh uh a uh, less with less authoritarian regimes that can so to say can never make it argentina is one example um, which has uh... turbulent turbulent politics uh different periods and yet since the beginning of the 20th century uh it cannot get out of this muddling through situation um, so i um on the one hand, it is very hard to see a different future. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think there necessarily will be a different future in conceivable, uh, in conceivable period of time. Um, this, uh, the patent that Putin brought back, that he reinstated in Russia, uh, centralized government, um, the uh, uh, government that uh, has tremendous advantage over this society in any kind of resource, it is traditional, it is habitual. It is uh, a path uh, that uh, uh, is uh, is uh, um, very common for Russia. Maybe it won't change in conceivable future. I think we should uh, uh, we should consider such a possibility too. What is true is, you know, if Putin stepped down in. T- uh, um, uh, Uh, 2008, if he had stepped down for real, he stepped down nominally, uh, while remaining Russia's uh, uh, most influential, most powerful man. For four years, he was not the President of Russia, he was the Prime Minister. If he had stepped down for real, he would go down in history as a man who made Russia prosperous. Uh, If he uh, steps down, Uh, he won't uh, um, next year when his time expires. Uh, He might um, go down in history as uh, the man who uh, reinstated Russia's greatness, but who presided over an economic decline. Now, uh, what Putin has not been able to do is to convert his achievement on the world scene into uh, the benefit for the Russian people, into opportunities for development. Does he have an plan in his mind for his next six years for that, to convert his achievements on the global scene into something that would benefit the Russian development. Maybe he does. We might see that. From today, uh, we don't see this prospect.
2: Thank you. Um, I am baffled, like everyone else, about uh,
0: President Trump's stance towards (laughs) Making better relationships with Russia, um, I'm curious what
2: what possible inroads could there be? Would would relaxing sanctions improve anything with Russia?
1: Is is Putin even interested in
0: better relationships with the United States? Um, I, I'm just curious. if
1: Well, (laughs) I'm baffled, too, by your president. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, So but uh, to uh, answer your question more seriously, I think um, there are three issues that Putin would be interested in. And this is Ukraine, Syria, and uh, sanctions. And lifting the sanctions, of course, would make a difference. Uh, Russia has adjusted. Uh, as I mentioned, Putin still enjoys this approval rating of 80 plus percent since uh, spring of 2014. It has not gone below uh, um, below 80 uh, percent. Um, but uh, where um, the sanctions hit is the ability to borrow, I mean for the state, for the banks, and uh, uh, Russia is desperate for investment, especially the investment that comes with technologies. So these two things are uh, uh, things that hurt Russia's economy. Uh, Ukraine, uh, it seems that uh, there is an interest in some kind of a resolution which is not possible without uh, uh, large significant external players. And of course, uh, the United States is number one. Syria, Russia has made quite uh, uh, um, a lot of progress as a country that has an influence in Syria. It wants this progress recognized. It wants a settlement uh, that uh, would um, make it secure its role as a major player. However, if we look at the developments recently, uh, there has been little progress, if any, on any of these but there have have been complications on issues uh, such as Iran, China, and arms control. Issues that uh, Trump already spoken on, if that even (laughs) means anything. Uh, But these issues immediately raised concerns in Moscow, on Iran, which Russia sees as an ally, and that Trump's administration refers to as uh, the number one terrorist country. So the Russian establishment was forced to respond that we do not see Iran as a terrorist country at all. With China in arms control, uh, I mean, we wouldn't go into it, but uh, what I mean is Russia would probably be interested in cooperation, uh, in uh, 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 some kind of a deal with the United States on three issues, and here are three more that are not of uh, immediate urgency, to Russia to negotiate it with the United States, but they raise concerns in Russia that uh, 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 these uh, the, 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 the priorities of President Trump and his administration are conflicted with Russia's interests. And you know, this leaves us uh, uh, baffled about uh, President Trump, the future of the Russian-American relations, but I think anything that um, uh, President Trump touches on, is, and speaks on, is baffling.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, Before we wrap up, uh, I want to point out that there is wine and food in the back, so you're welcome to stick around. Uh, I'd like to thank Phil Lyon and Val Petrova from the Elson Center for helping to set this up tonight. Uh, I'd like to thank the Jackson School of International Studies and uh, the Ellison family, some of whose members are here tonight for their continued generous support of the center. Uh, now please join me in thanking uh, Maria Lippin for a great talk tonight.